friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I am fresh from the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast up in D.C. I flew up and stayed overnight and was able to go to that breakfast that I try to go to every year. There are always um, wonderful recipients of prizes and wonderful people in the audience and great speeches. And it reminds me very much of how our religion, our Catholic religion, our Christian religion, is um, salting the earth and being leavened in our nation's capital and really everywhere, but how important it is to bring our values and our ideals to politics. So that's the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. And later on, we'll be checking in with our good friend, Mary Hassan, who received a prize at the breakfast. She is uh, always on top of things when it comes to person and identity, which is her wonderful project. But first, as we just marked one year since the invasion of Ukraine, we will revisit with Metropolitan Archbishop Boris Gudziak of the Ukrainian Catholic Archiparchy of Philadelphia about what Ukrainians are facing and what we as Catholics can do, especially during this Lenten season of fasting and penance. Um, I've been thinking this week of how important it is to to focus on what's happening in the Ukraine, the, the terrible toll of human suffering, of, of panic, of despair even, that must be going on in the hearts and the minds of the people who are losing their family members and seeing their homes blown up and their country destroyed, those who have fled. I think during Lent, um, it, it might help us to, when, when we make our sacrifices and our penance and our fasting, to offer it up, especially for the people of Ukraine who are giving us a real example of bravery in the face of the terrible aggression of, of the Russian government. We've asked Archbishop Boris Gudziak, who is the Ukrainian Catholic Archbishop uh, of Philadelphia. He will give us the latest in the situation there and his own personal reflections on how it affects people of faith in the Ukraine and, and what we can expect if Russia does in fact succeed. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Boris. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the great ministry that you uh, develop and, and serve. Um, and thank you for bringing the plight of the people of Ukraine and the church in Ukraine to the attention of your audience. Well, you know, we can only imagine what you must be feeling and other, other Ukrainians uh, living outside Ukraine with family members there because we are watching um, these terrible videos, these terrible images of, you know, what's the biggest land war in Europe since World War II and uh, people being killed right and left, many more hundreds, I think, than we know of. I think the, the casualties are probably much higher than are being reported 
reported just from watching the terrible effect of the of the shelling and the bombing. And um, what's it like from your perspective watching this horrible experience happening to your countrymen? It's a very strange thing. It's shocking. It's senseless. Uh, it's surreal. Um, I was in Ukraine in the first half of February uh, as the tension was really rising. Uh, I went in as, you know, American diplomats began leaving uh, at the beginning of the month. And then by the time I was leaving, uh, you know, just about all diplomats were leaving from from Kiev, from most countries. And Americans were were told leave immediately. I left because I had to be in Rome for meetings scheduled months ago at the Oriental Congregation and and, uh, an encounter with the Holy Father. Uh, But, uh, you know, you couldn't couldn't believe it, even though you knew uh, that the country on three sides, like a horseshoe, is surrounded by uh, 200,000 troops and... uh, we Ukrainians have, you know, 350 years of uh, history of, of Russian occupation, uh, Russian, you know, military violence, uh, even genocidal waves. So, you know, we don't doubt that it's possible. And, you know, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, every time there's a Russian occupation on a part of the country where the Ukrainian Church is serving, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church gets liquidated as a visible structure. It might take a year or two. It might take, a, you know, 10 years or, or 20. But sooner or later, when we are on land under Russian control, uh, we're eliminated. Yes, and sir. so there's, there's no naivete mm-hmm. about this. But it still is unbelievable in the 21st century. You know, this is one of the first cases really where a war is fully wired you know everybody's kind of seeing it globally instantly um and this is making a big difference uh, i think it you know it, it helps the victim when the evil and brutal deeds of of the invader are are so quickly shown and seen uh, by people throughout the world. Uh, Your Excellency, you said the word senseless referring to this war, and I maybe this is a very big question and you can't answer it in a minute or two, but can you attempt to make sense of this for our listeners? Because many of us are s- sitting over here in the West without that historical perspective that you have, an understanding of the interactions sure. between Ukraine and Russia over the centuries. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of why exactly is Putin advancing on the Ukraine? Yeah. Uh, it's the most important question, you know, for people who want to understand um, what's going on. And uh, it's only slowly that uh, the media is getting to the heart of the problem. Most media for months and many, you know, experts, uh, they kind of parrot Putin's line. Mm-hmm. Saying, well, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart and we were humiliated. And then, you know, NATO received the former Soviet satellite countries into membership and we're threatened by NATO and the United States. And, uh, you know, so we have to invade Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, and somewhere, you know, the question is, OK, 
first of all, NATO is a defensive alliance, uh, and it's not, you know, it's not threatening Russia. Mm-hmm. Ukraine has never invaded Russia. Um, in the the real reason is there's really two main reasons. One which is often stated by the media, and that is that there's nostalgia for empire. Hmm. Putin said 15 years ago that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in, in the 20th century. And he wants to rebuild an empire, his empire. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the sin of Adam. You know, Adam grabs for something, the, you know, the fruit, mm-hmm. the forbidden <laughs> fruit, and he wants to appropriate it. That's a basic human sin. Human nature grabs for itself. Whereas God's gesture is an open hand of giving, mm-hmm. sharing the Father to the Son in the Holy Spirit. And we're created to be givers. And we're created to be open and generous and be in good relationship. And sin is grabbing things for yourself, mm-hmm. whether they're physical or you know moral or whatever. Uh, it's human nature kind of turning in on itself. It's the ego turning in on itself instead of being in, in communion. So, you know, the, the worst the worst case scenario is when despots, you know, want more, more, and more. I mean, there's 11 time zones in Russia. How much more do you need? Uh, but, you know, that sin, when somebody makes a, a contract with the devil – you you lose you lose all moral perspective. And Putin, as a young man, became a KGB agent. That was a moral sellout. The KGB was a cynical, repressive organization that you know otherwise normal people in in the Soviet Union feared. You didn't want to talk to anybody that you know was in the KGB who you know whose wife worked in the KGB or husband worked in the KGB. That was. It was like the Gestapo. You know, mm-hmm. these are people that are dangerous, and and they're responsible for genocides uh, over you know the decades of the Soviet Union. And this is what Putin joined. So you sell your soul. It's mm-hmm. a Faustian thing. You're you're now going to do what you're told, and that might include killing people. And that that uh, that ultimate, uh, or maybe it's not the ultimate decision, because I hope he, I pray for his conversion, but that decision is there, and he reiterates it. He, he you know, he glorifies uh, the KGB and the Federal uh, Security Bureau, the FSB, uh, it's, you know, Russian version. Uh, he tries to whitewash uh, the history of the Soviet Union and its, its genocides. And so he wants to recreate it. But really, the most important reason why he's attacking specifically Ukraine is that because Ukraine is a big country. Apparently now they say there's about 44 million people. And 30 years ago, it had 20, 52 million people. Um, and Ukraine has developed, come out of the Soviet Union, you know, 30 and a half years ago, uh, as a democracy. It elects presidents. There have been six presidents in, in, in um, 30 years. In Russia, no president loses an election. You know? <laughs> uh, it's got freedom of the press. In Russia, journalists are killed. 
like Anna Politkovskaya, one mm-hmm. famous case. Uh, there's, you know, parties win elections, lose elections, have majority, lose majorities. In Russia, there's no opposition. Uh, in opposition, those who are really opposition uh, politicians can be killed. They can be shot in the, in the center of Moscow demonstratively. They can be poisoned. They can, uh, you know, be, opposition people can be killed by r- radioactive stuff that only a few countries produce. He's not even hiding. Putin isn't even hiding the fact that he's assassinating these people in London or, you know, in other places other countries are within his country and in ukraine you know there's freedom of a religion there's about a hundred denominations and everybody you know is on the same playing field not like the russian orthodox church which is wedded to the state um and you know there's toleration i mean seven by 70 percent ukraine ukrainians elected a jewish man as president mm-hmm. uh, Zelensky. Jewish background. You've got Muslim Tatars in Crimea. That's the native population of Crimea who were deported in in the 40s to uh, Siberia. And Ukraine welcomed them back. And these Muslim Tatars are great Ukrainian patriots. They're getting- Your Excellency, you, you made a point earlier about how this is sort of the first time a conflict like this is playing out in, in live time. And that's been the thing I've been struck by to see the way the role that social media has played and you know you mentioned the the prime minister who's um, you know basically been posting videos to social media of himself in, fighting in the streets and you know one thing that I've been struck by is uh, the way so many of these different faith leaders you know I just saw the um, like the chief rabbi, you know, said, I'm going to stay here for the Jews who can't flee. And, and so many priests, um, posting pictures of people worshiping underground. And, you know, what is your sense of, you know, the morale of, of the faithful, both, you know, those who are in communion with the Catholic church and, and, and the various other, you know, religious groups that, um, you undoubtedly have, uh, relationships with what is their, what is their morale and what's, you know, the the perspective of, of the Christians who are and, and the other faith groups who are there and sort of left behind or trapped or, or, or are purposefully staying for one reason or another. Many people are staying in place. Uh, uh, his beatitude, Svetoslav Shuchuk, the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, he's in Kiev. He's moving around because the place of his residence is is dangerous. And I know other bishops that are on the move, kind of looking for safe houses uh, because of the the danger. Um, but uh, uh, there's the whole range of possible human experiences. You know, when bombs are falling, you can't but be afraid you can't mm-hmm, but uh, be apprehensive and so you know many refugees are moving there's a half a million people that have left the country and by some estimates there might be as many as seven million refugees this is going to be the biggest refugee crisis of europe and you know since world war ii um but others are staying uh uh Clergy are going down into the, you know, these bunkers and, and into the met, metro, the subways where people are huddling and they're, um, you know, praying with the people. Uh, just two hours ago, I was talking with his Beatitude Svetoslav, 
and all of a sudden said, sorry, I got to go because the siren's on. You know, we have to run into the, you know, to the basement where, where he was located. Um, I talked to another bishop uh, 10 minutes before we spoke uh, in Kharkiv, which is being bombarded. And he said uh, today he had to move because his his where he lives was on the side of the city, which is being hit by all kinds of rocket fire. So uh, people are staying. Uh, 100,000 volunteers have, have joined the territorial defense units. In each town and city, uh, citizens are uh, joining these units. The, 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 the government is arming them, and, and they're defending their neighborhoods. Uh, so whether it's spiritually, morally, or militarily, you know, the country is showing incredible uh, resistance. Nobody expected it, and most of all, Putin didn't expect it. What do you think, Archbishop, about the response of the West? Um, maybe you can tell us what you think of the response from the Vatican, but then also countries in the West like the United States and, and other Europe and European countries. Well, uh, the U.S. response and that of Western Europe has been slow. Uh, and I mean slow because, you know, the writing was on the walls eight years ago when Putin uh, invaded uh, Ukraine on two sides and annexed part of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, there were sanctions, there were slaps on the wrist. And Putin saw the West and the U.S. as weak. And so he started building up his army. And this, this, uh, this invasion, massive invasion, comprehensive invasion, has been long in planning. Um, and so uh, um, the... Uh, response was weak and slow. It's much better now, but it needs to be stronger. It's only, you know, the world is kind of waking up to war in Ukraine, which has been going on for eight years. Uh, it's, it's now, you know, becoming catastrophic, uh, but it was very bad. There were two million uh, refugees from, from that Eastern Front and from Crimea over these last eight years. I mean, Ukrainians have been suffering in a tremendous way. The, the currency lost two-thirds of its value in 214. People lost two-thirds of the value of their salaries and of their savings. So uh, Ukrainians think that the West has, you know, often abandoned them. And they're, they're saying, listen, we're dying, we're fighting for what will be a war that will extend into Europe, why don't you at least help us? If you're, you know, if if you can't help us, you know, with your forces, help us with instruments. Your Excellency, there's, you know, continued talk of, you know, there'll be dialogue between Putin and Zelensky, and but I think also a sense of, you know, um, the uh, each side is not going to see, you know. Eye to eye with the other. Do you see any prospect for for peace, or do you see any sort of outcome where this could resolve without cascading into a larger scale European conflict, engulfing other countries? And you know, what do you see as some of the what's the best case realistic outcome? Well, you know, imagine at a bus stop there's uh, a lady that's beating, getting beat up by a hoodlum. And people on the side say, why don't you negotiate it? <laughs> I mean, what kind of negotiation? 
the hoodlum has been lying. He made fools of, you know, some politicians. Uh, the president of France, you know, came uh, two weeks ago to Moscow. Uh, he was treated as a boy. And he left saying, oh, we've come to an agreement and, you know, we're, you know, there, there won't be an invasion. And then before his plane landed, you know, the Russians said, no, 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 we didn't say anything of the sort. They lie. This invasion was carefully planned for months. There was no question that it would occur. And the question is, how do you negotiate with, you know, cynical liars who can kill kids, their own kids? There's, there's 5,000 Russian soldiers that have been killed in five days. For what reason? This is a great tragedy for the Russian people. Yes. Yes, it is. It's a great tra tragedy for them, too. And there are many Russians that are, that are very unhappy with this aggression from Russia into Ukraine. It's very sad what's happening. But I, I think one thing that it's hap a good effect that it's having, it's, it's concentrating the attentions of the world on something that's been going on for some time. Um, that we've too many people have decided to ignore in favor of concentrating on very really silly things and I'm thinking right now in America on our on the politics of woke and and all these silly sort of cultural not just silly but damaging cultural things that we chase uh, as a people um, do you think that this uh, terrible conflict in, in in the Ukraine will help to focus people's attention on what's important I hope so. You know, it works for me. We we begin a great Lent today. Uh, the Eastern rites begin on Monday, and you know, it this this is gonna this is gonna be a special Lent for me. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the sacrifice and deprivations of the the, the men on the front. Uh, I'm thinking of the people being bombed in cities. I'm thinking of the hundreds of thousands of people that today are on the road, families, you know, mothers with breast feeding their children, and they're in this freezing cold standing for, you know, 24 hours trying to get to the, you know, cross the border. We, we have many things that we should value. America is a great country. It has many weaknesses. One problem is that, you know, a lot of faithful uh, conservative Catholics think Putin is a defender of traditional values, not realizing that Russia has the highest abortion rate in the world, one of the highest alcoholism, suicide, divorce rates in the world. It's a thoroughly corrupt country. And this guy has been power for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And people say this guy is a defender of traditional values. He's a killer. Mm -hmm. He's a sociopath. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to Cardinal Sarah. Uh, last week, and he's, you know, a very holy man. And he said, I think Putin defends traditional values. And I said, your eminence. We were having coffee together and, you know, standing up. And, you know, I almost dropped my cup. And that is what disinformation does. Mm -hmm. And that is what you, what you are doing, why it is so important. Archbishop, what can our listeners do besides joining our prayers to all the prayers of the people across the world who are praying for the end of this, for the end of suffering in Ukraine, and even for the end of suffering of the, the Russians, the poor Russian soldiers who are being thrown into this fray? Um, what else can we do? What would you recommend so to us? I would. I, let's not skip over that so quickly. What else with prayer? Prayer moves <laughs> mountains. 
the Soviet Union fell apart without a war. Fifteen countries came out of it. Our churches became free. My church, our Ukrainian Catholic Church, became free after for being for 43 years the biggest illegal church in the world. And uh, that was through prayer. That was through grace. That's right. That was a miracle. It was the act of God. So pray yes. and pray and pray. A second, information. Everything we were saying about, there's so much disinformation. Putin is is attacking Ukraine because Ukraine has the virus of democracy. <laughs> it has the virus of freedom. It has the virus of transparency. Not in a perfect state. Ukraine has its own problems. But the U.S. also has many problems in its political system. But he doesn't want any of it in his autocratic, kleptocratic oligarchy where, where a few people control everything and uh, you know the rest of the population must toe the line. And the third thing is to uh, help in the humanitarian crisis. There's going to be millions of people that are going to be homeless. Millions. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're on the move. And it's the winter. And uh, they need our help. That's right. That's a good wake-up call for us. It's, um, it's, it's going to be a tremendous, even, even if everything stops today, on this very day, uh, just recovering from what's been going on, the terrible devastation There's in the Ukraine will be enormous. of dollars of infrastructure that have been destroyed. Uh, you know, electric stations, uh, uh, gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines, schools, hospitals, kindergartens, mm -hmm. roads, bridges, high-rise apartment buildings. It's incredible, you know, how quickly with with a demonic intention how we can destroy how we can kill and how long it takes to give life to heal and to build well archbishop i can't thank you enough for putting this all uh, out just laying it out for us in such a way that uh, really helps us understand and helps us uh, especially understand how important our prayers are and how important the defense of the Ukraine is to, to the world in general, not just to Ukrainians, but to all of us. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. God bless you and all, all the listeners. And I'm glad, glad to help in the next days and weeks to come because this is far from over. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are excited to welcome back onto the show our good friend, Mary Hassan. She is a trailblazer on many things, but especially on the gender ideology tsunami, which 
which swamped the, the Western world in the last few years. She does amazing work um, with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and she's a co-founder of the Person and Identity Project that I highly recommend to all our listeners, the Person and Identity Project. Well, welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you so much, Gracie. It's always wonderful to join you. We were able to see each other in person, which doesn't happen that much because I am in Miami, as our listeners know, and Mary is in the D.C. area. This week, we had the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, which is a, a yearly event that I try to attend every year. It's It, it always highlights and, and, and gives prizes to two or three people who are doing important work in, in public policy and in and in moving the right ideas, right, into the public conversation, the, the, the public square. This year, Mary uh, Hassan was the recipient of the Christe Fidelis Leici Award, which translates to Lay Catholic Faithful Award. I was very happy to see you, Mary, up on stage, and you gave a beautiful talk explaining your work in the in these fields and why you received the award. So why don't you give us a little thumbnail of that? Sure. You know, I was tremendously honored because, as you know, the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast it just really gathers some fantastic people who are doing great things in the culture out there and just trying to bring our faith to have an impact on people's lives, on law, on policy, etc. So it was a tremendous honor to be honored as part of that event. But the um, my focus, and I think one reason why, as I understand it, they honored me with this award is because gender ideology has really, as you said in your opener, you know, really become a tsunami hitting our culture and so many of our families. So because of some research I'd been doing, gosh, eight, almost 10 years ago, I was able to see that this was this was coming. In other words, it was working its way through not just academia, but also yeah, we were starting to see some legal changes and changes within the public schools, et cetera. So I and several colleagues, um, my sister, Teresa Farnan, who is also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and Susan Selner-Wright, who is a uh, seminary professor up at St. John Vianney in, in Denver, got together and decided to do this project, the Person Identity Project, which really seeks to equip Catholics and Catholic institutions to know the truth about the human person and to really teach that and, and bring that forward to a generation that really needs to hear that truth again, and then also to counter gender ideology, to really understand what's coming and what the words mean and, and how they need to to push back on it. Mary, I find it very interesting that the Person and Identity Project uses the word identity, because in our modern culture and in the, in the discourse out there, the word identity has become a kind of totem word. It's this giant mm. word that means so much. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so really good question, because I, I think you're right. We hear about identity politics all the time or intersectional identities. And, and really what that is, is kind of a postmodern focus of looking at the person not as uh, an understandable person with, with a human nature and a clear identity as male or female, but rather that each person sort of self-defines an identity for themselves. And that in, in some quarters, the more identities you have, social identities you have that, that are victimized, you you gain a little stature. So there's a uh, kind of a reverse correlation. If you can show you're a victim because you're of your race, your your ethnicity, your your sex, whatever it might be, you you gain stature or at least supposedly the right to critique others and to try to 
dismantle structures of, of society, moral norms, basically, that you might find oppressive. So all that is to say that within the culture, this idea of identity has really become uh, a political football, and but it's lost the meaning. In fact, we have to know who we are. Identity is tremendously important because how you answer that question of who am I is going to determine how you answer the other important questions of life, like what's the meaning of life and, and what's good, what's evil, how should I live? And so for us as Christians, we have to focus on and embrace the fact that our primary identity is as a son or daughter of the Lord. In other words, he, he gave us our sexual identity being male or female, and yet it's also a relational identity. We're always in relationship with him. So so identity is important, but perhaps not for the reasons that within the culture it's become such a totem, as you, as you said. So. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a couple of really interesting things in, in what you said, several interesting things, and one of them to me is the givenness of, of mm. identity versus the choosing of identity. It brings to mind recently NPR tweeted, the National Public Radio tweeted an actress, an Asian actress who received an Oscar identified as Asian. This is a Chinese woman, a, Chi a, mm. a Chinese American maybe, or, or maybe she's, I don't know. I don't know what her nationality is, but she's obviously a mm -hmm. Chinese Asian in, in her ethnicity. She identifies as Asian. Okay, so, mm. so here we have identity as, as something chosen instead of given. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the right thing to hone in on because we know that because God created us, He's the one who made us. He's the one who gives us that fundamental identity. And so the Catechism talks about us needing to accept, acknowledge, to receive our sexual identity as male or female as a gift from God. And so when we see that as something He's chosen specifically in creating us, this is who He's given us to be. And, and we get to unpack that and live that out according to to our vocation, the circumstances of our lives. But that fundamental gift of being male or female is exactly that. It's a gift. Whereas what you were highlighting in the, the world at large, this idea of identity is something you choose. You identify as. In other words, I assert, I decide this is who I am. And when you're talking about gender ideology, what it means is I decide who I am regardless of my body. In other words, even though we know our body is a given, when you start looking at, at the false claims of something like gender identity and gender ideology, what they're saying is you decide who you are, but your body doesn't matter. So even though we have a body to deal with, they try to reduce the significance and say, what's important is that choice, that making that decision of who I'm going to be from the wide world of many options, even if it means you're denying something true about yourself. It's very strange in, in one sense, because it's, it's the idea that my beliefs, my desires can shape reality mm -hmm. instead of acknowledging what reality is. Is we're supposed to discover and, in a sense, conform to reality, right? We, we know the laws of gravity. We, we discover that. We have to conform our lives to that. We can't keep trying to jump upwards. It's not going to work. You know, you're going to jump down or you're going to fall down. And gravity exerts a pull. But if you, if you refuse to recognize that there's an order to the world and an order, indeed, to our bodies, you're constantly fighting nature. You're trying to come up with a better idea, even though it, it's not really within our power to do so. So it's the, it's the enthronement of the human will as the exactly. thing as the thing that determines all what is, is yeah. that am i going too far in that statement oh no no i think you that's the perfect distillation of what i was saying that's exactly it 
And yet, as Christians, um, we we do respect the human will, right? Like the only way to to achieve any kind of sanctity is through the exercise of our will, because we will to cooperate with grace. Mm-hmm. But without mm-hmm. that, without that exercise of will, we can't rise up, right? We can't like we can't become fully alive as men and women so where right. where is that balance for us christians like where is the balance of that that human will that that cooperates with grace that allows us to sanctify mm-hmm. to be sanctified and then the other side the enthronement of the will as the only thing that matters mm-hmm. yeah so it it basically breaks down into whether you believe in god or not as you know for a starting point because the Christian exercise of the will is to choose to respond mm-hmm. to an invitation he's given or to choose to accept, which is what we're called to do, to accept and acknowledge the gift, for example, of of our male or female body, of our, our basic identity as a son or daughter of the Lord. God gives us free will. We can turn our backs on that, and that's one of the things we're seeing, unfortunately, in huge numbers across the culture. People uh, basically repeating the sequence of, in the garden. You know, in the garden, back, yes. yes. <laughs> I was just thinking the same time. thing. Yeah, it's like we, we have such pride, we think, hey, I've got a better idea. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want nature and the way you have set things up, God. I'll do it my way. So the Christian exercise of will is how we live virtue. In other words, we use our intellect and our reason to choose the good. Whereas in the, the world's paradigm where you're enthroning the will, as you said, there's nothing higher than my choice. It means also you're not recognizing any truth outside of yourself. You're not recognizing or responding to the order of nature or the reality that God created you a certain way and, and he, he gives you this gift. It says instead, no, I, I'm going to decide I will create my own reality, create my own truth. So it's a subjectivism, but it's also illogical. Right? You know, I'm so glad that you brought up the garden, Mary, because in the garden, God had had ensconced Adam and Eve in this place of delight, right? Where they could mm-hmm. where they could live this this fully joyful, totally integrated life in their in their own nature, integrated with nature around them, uh, a life without strife and without pain and without suffering and without death. Mm-hmm. And they chose otherwise, right? Because they chose they chose to do the one little thing that they couldn't do. <laughs> so they chose right. away from all this beauty and delight. And, mm-hmm. and nature, and, and, and they went in the other direction. And, right. and in a sense, when we choose away from our sex, we are doing the same thing that Adam and Eve were doing because our sex and our beautifully functioning, healthy bodies, they're mm-hmm. sources of delight, right? right? And they're sources of life, and we're so beautifully made, and we're so capable of so much, whether we're male or female, and in in each in our own distinct, specific capacity in, in, according to our sex. And yet we choose away. Are these people, or we're being told that to choose away from that is possible and, and will bring us something better than the beauty that we already have. Yeah, well, if you think about the garden, so the, you know, the devil in tempting told a lie. Right? Mm-hmm. He said, you will be like God. You, you, you get to decide for yourselves. And it was a lie. You will never die. You know, he, he promised them all sorts of things to tempt them to, to no longer trust in God and to reject God's guardrails, basically. You know, God saying, here, do, do things this way. And so in the same way, we see young people believing a lie mm-hmm. that they can, they have somehow have power 
to erase the fact of their their sexed body and that they can become someone different. But as you know, because of your medical background, you know, once they start messing with a healthy body with these hormones and surgery, all they're doing is breaking the body. They're breaking, yes. They're destroying its function. Mm -hmm. They cannot become the opposite sex. They cannot become this person they imagine that they can become. So it's a delusion, again, just like Adam and Eve, if you don't trust God and believe that he really has has chosen well for you in the gifts that he's given, and you want to just do it our way, well, we end up breaking things. <laughs> and it, it, uh, we create a lot of suffering. Mary, let me take you back to something else you said a few minutes ago. You talked about relational, people being relational, that as an identity, we're talking about the meaning of identity. If, I, if somebody asks me, what's your identity, Gracie? I immediately start with my relationships. I am the daughter of God, the wife mm-hmm. of my husband, the mother of my children, the right. daughter of now just my mother, <laughs> and I am my, my I have my I'm the sister of so and so and and so and so. That's how I think of myself. And in and in each of those relationships, there are a whole list of implied duties that come with those mm. relationships that I embrace because it is in the duties of those relationships that I find my my greatest joy and my reason to get up in the morning and that's what gives my life meaning the my mm-hmm. the duties in enlaced and infused into my relationships what do you think does that is that a worldview that's been rejected entirely with this uh, ident- this new cultural idea of identity well, I, I think what's happened is we've sort of lost sight of the truth about who we are. So I don't, I mean, in some quarters, certainly that's rejected outright. But I think what, what has happened over the past couple of decades to many people is that we've become so materialistic, we've become so consumeristic, we've become so individualistic. We've stopped recognizing the priority of relationships first with God and, and then, you know, those we are in relationship with, beginning with our family and and going out from there. And when we simply prioritize what I want to do and we prioritize kind of the materialistic worldview, the here and now, the things I acquire or even the status I acquire, we end up impoverishing ourselves and our lives. So I think it's something that is kind of snuck up on a lot of people where I think if you ask most people, let's say, who are married, they'll say, yeah, sure, I love my spouse. But you have to say, okay. What are you prioritizing in your life? Are you prioritizing things or are you prioritizing people? Are you prioritizing the relationship or are you prioritizing something that is going to pass away, that doesn't endure, whereas, you know, these human beings live forever and, mm-hmm. and we're called to live forever. So we you'd think that we would immediately recognize the priority of relationships, but it is something that, uh, again, I, I think we just, it's like a, a windshield when you're driving on a long trip, it gets cloudier and cloudier, it gets all these bugs on the windshield and it's harder to see clearly. I, I think if we're not tending to our spiritual lives and we're not really stepping back and being detached from, from material things, we our vision gets cloudy. And we start to prioritize the wrong things. We forget who we are. So, so where do we go from here, Mary? We we seem to have gone far along this road of of losing sight of our identity, our true identity. Mm-hmm. How can each of us, in our own little space and, and and surrounded by the people that we live with, how can we try to walk the world back? Yeah. So, you know, Pope Benedict, when he spoke way back in 2012 about the problem of gender ideology, he said one of the problems is that when we start to think we get to do it all, you know, we get to create our lives and we we lose sight of God 
And, but when we lose sight of God, we, we lose a sense of the depth of who we are. And as our culture has gotten less and less religious, it makes it easier for people to lose sight because they're losing sight of God, to lose sight of the truth about themselves. So, practically speaking, I think uh, we as Christians need to intensify our relationships first with God, but we also need to speak about it. I remember a study that, that came out sometime in the past year that was talking about what makes a difference in terms of faith sticking in a, in a kid's life. An important factor was whether the parents actually talked about living their faith. It wasn't just they went to church, you know, on Sunday or whatever. It was the topic of conversation because this, their relationship with God was how they lived. And Catholics were actually not as conversant with their children about faith as, say, some of the evangelicals, where it was much more a part of conversation. So I think in a practical matter, deepen our own faith lives, but then be committed to sharing that so that people see that not only are we in relationship, but God has invited them into relationship with Him. And and then the third thing I'd say is just kind of step back and, and look at your life. You know, is your time, your money, everything spent on things? Or is it enriching your relationships? Is it fulfilling your taking the talents and gifts you've been given and, and serving someone else. In other words, giving of yourself to others. I, I think all those things help reorient us so that we're we're remembering we're face to face with God. That's our primary relationship. Someday we're going home to him and, and we need to be changing the culture to help people flourish so they too can find their way to eternal life with him. But it takes some intentionality because the, what we have in the world is a real strong pushback, and it's very difficult. Mary, that is brilliant advice, and we have to end it there because that was just perfect. I don't want to mess that up. Mary, it's, it's <laughs> such a treat to have you on the show. Thank you for making time for us. And to learn more about Mary Hassan's work, make sure to check out eppc.org and also the personandidentityproject.com. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much, Gracie. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to have a chance to ponder with you. The consequential conversation God wants to have with us as we mark the fourth Sunday of Lent. In the Gospel, Jesus will cure a man blind from birth. But he works this miracle far differently from the many other times he cured those who had no sight. In the other cases, the blind man asked, in fact, cried out, begging for help. This Sunday, the blind man doesn't say a thing. He's just there along the road and becomes the object of a theological question from the disciples about why he was blind. Jesus stated that the reason he was blind from birth was to allow God's works to show through him. His whole life in darkness up until that point was so that he could encounter the saving power of Jesus and from that moment onward be a tremendously conspicuous example of God's own light shining brightly through him. That truth influences the way Jesus performs this miracle because Jesus had two healings in mind. First, a physical one for him and then a spiritual one for him and for us all. The Lord Jesus first spits on the ground, makes mud with his saliva, and then goes up unbidden to the blind man, smearing his eyes with mud. The blind man could have easily thought that someone was making fun of him and abusing him, as probably happened often. But the Lord wasn't done. Jesus then told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The blind man could have reckoned, what a stupid and pointless hassle. Wipe mud on my eyes and then send me who can't see to wash in a pool where I could easily fall in and drown? Jesus, however, must have given that command in a way that inspired trust. 
by the man's willingness to carry out this simple imperative Jesus gave. The man embarked without knowing it on the great adventure of faith, on the exciting journey from darkness into light. Jesus allowed this man, unlike the other blind men he cured, and this is the second difference from the other cures Jesus worked, to participate actively in his own healing, so that through the process, he might receive not just the ability to see the physical light of the world, but also a much deeper light, the light of faith in Jesus, the true light of the world. Three and a half weeks ago, Jesus did to us something similar to what he did to the man born blind in this Sunday's gospel. Someone acting in Jesus' name smudged our foreheads, not with muddy saliva, but moistened ashes. Gave us a two-part command, the same directive with which Jesus began his whole public ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' way for us to participate in our own healing during this blessed time. In our own coming from darkness into light. In our own exodus from sin to love. Our own Passover from death to life. We might have been tempted to consider this more or less an empty rite, something symbolic. But Jesus wanted to work in us during this time a true miracle of healing through our participation and trust in this two-part therapeutic process. The first part of the cure of our blindness begins with repenting, which means turning away from the life of sin that blinds us. Sin darkens the intellect and distorts the will so that often we can no longer even see the good clearly or choose it when we do. The repentance that it's part, that's part of our cure means recognizing that sin has left us partially or totally sightless, that we're blind and that we need God's help to see. The second stage in our cure, Jesus told us, told us on Ash Wednesday, is believing in the good news. Jesus says to the man in the gospel, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man's physical cure, a miracle that caused a tremendous stir among the people in Jerusalem and allowed God's work to shine in him, was merely a prelude to the spiritual cure that would involve not just leaving darkness, but living in the light of Christ. Do believe in the Son of Man. The man responded with a faithful willingness as well as a humble recognition he needed help. Who is he, sir? He replied, that I may believe in him. Jesus told him, you have seen him and he is speaking to you now. In the healing Jesus wants to carry out in us this Lent, he asks us the same question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is the gospel incarnate. And believing in the good news means believing in him. With similar humility to the man healed by Jesus in the gospel, we're called to say, show me, Lord, that I may believe. With that docility, the Lord can then show us in new and deeper ways. You have seen him and he's speaking to you now. He speaks to us in times of prayer, especially the extra prayer we try to make in this desert period of Lent. He speaks to us in sacred scripture and through the church he founded. He speaks to us through our almsgiving. As he tells us, I was hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, ill, imprisoned, or otherwise in need, and you cared for me. He speaks to us in our fasting so that we may attune all our appetites with gratitude to the physical and spiritual food he gives us. He speaks to us in day-to-day -day events including in the midst of the war in the Ukraine, with concerns about the effects of the Silicon Valley bank collapse, with family members and friends sick and suffering, and all of the other struggles we may be enduring. He's speaking to us now. To come to see Jesus anew, to hear him speak to us in each moment of our life, to come to look at all things with the light of Christ, that's the whole point of the Lenten adventure of faith. These 40 days are a gift from God to help us leave the darkness caused by sin, to see Jesus in all things as they really are, see himself sees them.
At a practical level, how is our vision supposed to change this Lent? What does it mean to be cured by Christ of our spiritual blindness and to see things in his light? In order for us to appreciate the miracle Christ wants to work in us this Lent, I'd ask you first to think what it would have been like for that man born blind returning from the pool of Siloam. He had never seen anything, and now he could see everything. He could see colors, he could see the splendor of the temple, he could see what was going on, he could see where he was walking. For the first time, he could see himself reflected in the pool. He could see the faces of those talking to him. He could see the face of Jesus. His whole life would have been changed. A similar change is meant to happen to us when Christ heals our sight and makes it possible for us to see things with his light, to look at everything, including our crosses through the lenses of faith, to see things as God sees them, and therefore to see all things accurately. Practically speaking, it means hearing Jesus say in the various events and people we encounter throughout the day, you have seen me and I am speaking to you now. Someone who shows us how to look at the world in the light of faith is St. Joseph, whom the church normally celebrates on March 19th. Because the fourth Sunday of Lent takes precedence liturgically over the solemnity of St. Joseph, the church this year has moved his feast to Monday. But it's good for all of us to recall the example of the man God the Father chose to raise his son according to his humanity, to protect his son's mother, and to raise raise us and protect the church. At the beginning, St. Joseph, a just man, was blind to what God was doing with Our Lady. She returned from the visitation very much pregnant by some agency beyond him. He loved her. He venerated her purity, but he was confused because she was nevertheless pregnant. He's planning to divorce her quietly lest she be stoned to death and was without question asking God what he should do when God spoke to him in a dream and told him not to be afraid to take Mary's betrothed wife into his home and to recognize that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph began to see everything in a new perspective. Mary, Jesus whom he would name, as well as his own vocation, were now becoming clearer. From that point forward, he centered his whole life on Jesus, the light who illumines everyone. He's praying for each of us that we will similarly open up our life to center it fully on Jesus, the Savior of the world. The fourth Sunday of Lent is always called Laetare Sunday because at this midway point to the season of conversion and penance, Christ wants to fill us with the joy with which he filled the blind man in Jerusalem. He came into the world so that his joy may be in us and our joy made complete. He wants to enter whatever darkness we may be experiencing and turn all the lights on. He wants to help those preparing for baptism and all of us baptized to experience the splendor of his light, take confidence that the one who has conquered darkness and death is with us until the end of time. He wants to engage each of us like he did the blind man in the gospel in a consequential and healing conversation that will continue until we're able to see Jesus face to face in the heavenly Jerusalem. We're with St. Joseph, our Blessed Lady, and all the saints. We will rejoice forever in the unending splendor of God's eternal light. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers.